Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. People in the Bible are less holy and more human than we might expect. Israel has 12 sons, and yet, like us, he still fails at basic parenting. Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the new series, Joseph, God's Prevailing Goodness, with this sermon entitled Dreams and Deception, Where is God?, which covers Genesis chapter 37. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We have just finished our last sermon series called One Another, and today marks the start of a new one a series where we're going to be looking at the life of one of the most famous people in all the Bible, but maybe one of those that we haven't fully understood. And that's the life of Joseph, the story that's told in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. And this is a story that we need because it's one that shows not only the love of our God, but the sovereign power of our God and the way that he moves to save his people. So with that said, let's start. I'm going to ask Keith to come out and read from us from Genesis 37 where our story begins. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down before me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Reveal your holy, eternal word to us and introduce us to the knowledge of your will. Where we have erred, correct us. Where we are wounded, heal us. Where we are needy, fill us. Good shepherd, lead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Father, we ask now, would you come as we dig into your word? Would you take this text that in many ways, Lord, is a heavy one? Lord, one that pokes on these broken, wounded places in our hearts. And Lord, I pray, would you bring the healing balm of the gospel to bear? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Years ago, I got sucked into a television show that I am in no way recommending to you. So please, if you walk away from this, don't go watch this show. But it sucked me in because the premise to me was fascinating. It was this story of a world 
where all the things that you think about the supernatural are real. There are angels and demons that are constantly at war with each other. All the gods that you think about across history, they exist and they are fighting with each other. And the world is constantly on the edge of an apocalypse. Everything seems as though it is about to fall apart at a moment's notice. There's this thread that if it gets clipped, everything dies. And in this world, in this world, the God of the Bible exists. The problem is he's nowhere to be found. And there are these two brothers who are desperate to find him. Because they're thinking, if God made this world, if he's the one who rules over everything that's happening, then if we can just find him, surely he's going to save us. Surely he will stop the destruction that's supposed to be coming. And so they look, and they look, and they look, and they search, and they search, and they search, and they beg for anyone to listen, to hear them, and for God to respond until finally they come to this conclusion. God just doesn't care. He has washed his hands of this world and he has left it to rot. And one of the brothers says this, God's just another deadbeat dad, full of excuses. Because in this world of trouble, where is he? You know, I, as I've said, I don't recommend that show. But what that brother said, that's the answer to a question that every one of us has either asked or one day will ask. That question of in this world of sin and brokenness, where is God? It's the question of the football player who tears his ACL as he's going for a touchdown catch and is wondering where God is and why he would let it happen. It's the question of the child who has sat behind their bedroom door and listened to their parents scream and fight and has begged the Lord to make it stop and yet it never seems to. It's the question that maybe you've asked when your spouse was diagnosed with cancer and then no matter how much you prayed, God didn't stop it. It's the question that maybe you had when you lost your job. And it was for reasons that you knew were not fair and they were not right and they were not just. And so you wondered, God, in the midst of all of this, where are you? It's the question that I asked a lot as a kid. Growing up in a house where my parents told me from the day I was born, there is a God who loves you and cares for you and listens to you, who hears your prayers and answers them. And then I would walk into school and I would feel as though I was utterly alone. Where are you? Why don't you hear? Why aren't you answering? Where are you in the midst of all of this sin, all of this evil, all of this brokenness? Why don't you do the things that it would seem would be good for you to do? Why do you leave us in these situations, in these circumstances right now? And that question, where is God? That's the question of Genesis 37. When we come into this text today, it has already been established that the family that we are seeing here, this is God's chosen family. This is the family that out of all the world, God has come to and said, you are the means through which I am going to save the world. Jacob's sons, 
You are going to be a holy nation united in the worship of the Lord, a light amidst the darkness, the means through which one day I am going to redeem and restore everything that sin has broken. And yet, when you come into this text, what do you see? Not a holy family. Not a righteous family. Not even a good family. What do you see? A family that is as broken as ours, if not more so. And God, God is not mentioned one time. We read just the first 11 verses, but over the course of this whole chapter, 36 verses in all, you see evil after evil after evil recounted until finally a sin so heinous has been committed it seems as though there is nothing that could ever redeem it. And in those 36 verses, there is one person who shows up not one time, and that's God. And so the question is this, in the midst of this world of sin and brokenness, where is he? Because when we open up this text, we find the family that may be God's chosen family, but they're a dysfunctional one, aren't they? There's, there's no heroes here. These first 11 verses, they don't offer us anybody that you should look at and go, that, that's somebody whose example I should follow. Certainly not Jacob. You know, Jacob, at this point in the story, Jacob's supposed to be a new man with a new name. You know, if you put it in terms, uh, in the way we kind of think of things, of a conversion story, Jacob's the guy who ran from God all of his life, only to have God chase him down and break him of his independence and turn him into one who in weakness trusts the Lord. That's the story of Jacob. He lies and he deceives because he trusts no one but himself, and then the Lord in his grace intervenes and makes this man who had lied and deceived one who clings to the Lord in brokenness, trusting that only God can provide for him the blessing that he needs. And God gives him a new name to express that new reality, and yet we turn here to our text today, and what do we find? Jacob may have a new name, but he's repeating some old patterns, isn't he? Jacob is doing the one thing that every parent knows they should absolutely never, ever, ever do. Jacob is playing favorites. You know, I joke with my daughters all the time, and maybe I'm wrong in this, and some one of y'all come correct me or rebuke me. But I'll say to Mary Neal, you're my favorite oldest daughter. Or to Maggie, you're my favorite youngest daughter. Or to Lucy, you're my favorite blonde twin. Or to Alice, you're my favorite brunette twin. And then they'll go, ugh, Dad, I'm the only one. They know. But I'm always careful to make sure that at no point am I saying, you're the one I like more than the rest. Jacob, Jacob does no such thing. And Jacob, of all people, Jacob should know better, shouldn't he? One, Jacob is the son that his own father didn't love. Jacob's father Isaac preferred Jacob's brother Esau to him, and everything that he did showed it. And Jacob, he felt the pain and the sting of that sin. But not only does he know this personally, but two, Jacob, Jacob's made this mistake before, hasn't he? You know, over the course of Jacob's life, we're told he has four wives which the Bible's not endorsing, by the way. Just look at what happens to his family, and you can tell this was an unwise decision. 
But we're told something very specific about the first two wives, aren't we? Genesis 29, Jacob loved Rachel, but, and this is the language of the text, he hated Leah. One wife he loves, the other wife he hates. And it is a cancer that spreads throughout the entire family system. It means this is a family that even here in Genesis 37, it is a family that is already at war with itself. And what does Jacob do? He doesn't fix it. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn from it. But no, in this text, he takes his finger and he just puts it into the wound. He doesn't just love one wife more than another. He loves one son, the son of the beloved wife, more than the sons of the wife that he hated. It says in verse 3, Now Israel, there's that new name, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He says this, this is the son that I love. And it's not just a feeling in his heart. It's not just something that he wrestles with. No, this is something that Jacob has made public. Because what does he do for Joseph that he does for no one else? It says in the second part of verse 3, he made him a robe of many colors, the kind of robe you give to royalty. Every time Joseph puts on that robe, the father's preference is being proclaimed to the brothers. Here is the son your father loves. Here is the one who one day is going to reign. Here is the one who is going to receive the inheritance, not you. Can you imagine for a second being one of those other sons? Of knowing that you are the child of a woman your father didn't love. And not only that, but you are a son that your father does not love. What damage would that do to you? Jacob he may be old and he may have walked with the Lord for a long time. But he still has a long way to go, doesn't he? He's not a hero. But neither is Joseph. You know, when we look at Joseph over these next few chapters, he becomes this almost exemplary figure, but not in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, he's that kid that you and your spouse walk away from and whisper once you get into the car, like, that kid really needs some discipline, doesn't he? He's had everything given to him and nothing withheld. He has all of his father's affection and none of his discipline, and the fruit, the fruit is rotten. Because what is Jacob doing? If, if, if Jacob is putting his finger in the wound, Joseph, Joseph is taking his fist, covering it in salt, and then just grinding it around. Because these brothers, who are already on a lower rung of their father's affection, who are down the scale of the family hierarchy, Joseph just grinds them down even further. First, he lies about them, verse 2. He brings a bad report to their father, basically trashing their reputations for something that they haven't done. It's slander. He is slandering their reputations to their father. But then, two... Look at the way he deals with his dreams. 
In verses 5 to 11, Jacob, or not Jacob, Joseph, there's too many J's in the story. Joseph receives these two dreams. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. One, in the story of Genesis, dreams almost always come from the Lord. And it is the Lord who gives the interpretation of that dream. And two, when a dream is repeated twice, not in the details, but in the meaning, it means this is something that God is certainly going to do. Jacob or Joseph is later going to say that to Pharaoh in chapter 49. So whatever is happening here, it is the Lord speaking to Joseph and saying, this is certainly going to happen. And what is the content of the dream? You are going to rule and your brothers, your family, everyone in it, they are going to bow before you. And what does Joseph do? Wearing that stupid royal robe. He doesn't sit there in his heart and think, Lord, what should I do with this? I don't want to inflame the tensions anymore. He doesn't go to his father and say, Dad, you used to have dreams from the Lord. How do you respond to them? What should I do? How do I steward it? No, two times we're told, verse 5 and verse 8, Jacob went first where? To his brothers. Why? Because he wants them to know who will rule. He wants them to feel it and to know it. Because Joseph's not a hero. But before you start to feel bad for the brothers, Scripture makes very clear that they're not heroes either. You know, Jacob was wrong to play favorites. He was not wrong to have concerns about these men. Think about the things, if you've read this story, that you already know about these brothers. Simeon and Levi, two of the brothers, they've already slaughtered a town because they got angry. Reuben, because he didn't want them to beat him in the My Father Hates Me Olympics, he decides to up the ante. He sleeps with one of his father's wives. That'll win your dad over. These are violent and treacherous men. And everything we are told in chapter 37, it tells us that these these are not innocent victims. These are not long-suffering saints. These are men who are as full of sin as Jacob and Joseph. Over and over and over, what are we told about them? They hate Joseph. Verse 4, they hate him because their father loves him more than them. Verses 5 and 8, they hate him because of his dreams and the way that he talks about them. Verse 11, they hate him because they want what he has. It says that they are jealous of him. And jealous specifically about what? The dream. Because what does the dream mean? It means that not only does their father favor Joseph, it means maybe God favors him too. And the brothers hate it. Behold God's chosen family. You know, I grew up in a fantastic home. I had great parents. I had a great brother and a great sister. But probably like everybody in this room, there were things in my family dynamic that I wish were different. My dad and I fought a whole lot more than I care to admit, mostly because of me. I was a terrible jerk to my sister. 
And there are sins that have been passed down in my family generation after generation that are still reverberating to this day. But I'll be really honest, I read this text and I get really thankful. Because it wasn't as bad as this. And then everything just gets worse. In verse 12, Jacob sends Joseph to find the brothers who are shepherding the sheep, which tells you again that there is a gap between the brothers. Because what's happening? The brothers are working with the sheep, and where's Joseph? He's at home, resting. And what is he now being sent to do? He's being sent to bring a report about the brothers, which we already know hasn't gone well in the past. Verse 2, the bad report he brought. And so Joseph goes to find his brothers, and they're not there. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're not where he expects to find them. And he's about to give up when he runs into this random person who's given no name, who just so happens to know where his brothers are, and the man points him towards his brothers, and Joseph heads in their direction, and his brothers, while he is still far off, they see him, and the brothers decide this is it. There he is in that stupid, stupid robe. We are sick of it. We are tired. Enough is enough. Let's kill Joseph. Verse 19. Here comes, and don't miss the contempt, this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Don't miss the logic of what they're saying. If we kill Joseph, we get what we want. If we kill Joseph, our father can't love a dead son more than living ones, can he? And if we kill Joseph, what else do we kill? We kill the dream. Living people can't bow to dead ones, can they? But that also means something else. If they're defying the dream, who else are they defying? The one who gives the dream. God himself. The brothers are saying, we don't want Jacob, and we don't want Joseph, and we don't want God to rule over us. Let's kill him. And so when Jacob comes near, or Joseph comes near, they strip that robe from his shoulders, and they throw him in a pit, sparing his life just for a moment because Reuben convinces them not to kill him immediately. And then while they're eating lunch, Verse 25, which shows you how callous this is. This band of slave traders shows up, and the brothers decide that maybe there's a better way to get rid of Joseph. Maybe there's a way not only to get rid of him, but to also get something in return. Judah, Judah says in verse 26, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Hear what he's saying. This is not a man who's going, you know what, maybe we shouldn't kill our brother. This is a man who's saying, no matter what, we're going back to our father missing one brother. We're going to go back missing a son we may as well go back with money in our pockets too. 
What profit is it? What could we get out of this? So they sell Joseph into the slavery in Egypt, which is basically a living death. And then they take that stupid robe and they dip it in the blood of a goat, thinking that if they send this to their father, that maybe they can trick him in the same way that Jacob once tricked Isaac with the skin of a goat. And their father will see it and he will think his son has died because of a wild animal and they send it to their father and Jacob, Jacob breaks. We're told in verse 34 that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son for many days and no matter how much his sons, his whole family tried to comfort him, he refused to be comforted. Hear what that means. They are coming to him and saying, Dad, there is surely something, something that can be redeemed from this. And he's saying, no, there is nothing. Nothing can fix what has happened. God can't redeem what has been broken. God can't heal it. It is dead. And it brings us to the end of the chapter. And nothing good seems to have happened. Jacob's despairing. Joseph is in slavery. The brothers have just committed a sin that deserves death. And not only that, it's a sin that they can never confess because then they will lose the one thing they hoped to earn by it, and that's what? Their father's love. And it brings us back to that question. Where in the midst of all of this is God? Where is he? Jacob's asking it. The son that he loved. The son whose dreams he pondered. The son that he probably thought was the one through whom God was eventually going to redeem this broken world. That son is gone. And in his heart there is no hope left. Where's God? Joseph. Joseph's asking it. Everything that he once held precious has just been stripped from his hands. He's lost his father. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's lost his home. And the man who thought he was going to rule, who once wore that royal robe, now he wears chains. And he is being carried off into a place that seems as dark as death. Where's God? I love the fact that there are stories like this in the Bible. Because it tells us something, doesn't it? God knows that we have these kinds of questions. He knows that some of us, like Joseph, have suffered at the hands of those who should have protected us. And we have asked those questions time and time again. God, where were you then and where are you now? He knows that some of us have suffered like Jacob. That we have grown old and we have walked with the Lord for many years and yet those sins, those patterns of sin that we thought we were going to have broken by now, they're still there. 
and those dreams of what God was going to do and how he was going to work through us and through our family, those dreams, they haven't turned out quite the way we expected. In fact, maybe it feels like they've died. God, where are you? He knows that some of us have committed sins like the brothers. Sins that are so heinous that we are afraid to even whisper them to ourselves, let alone confess them to someone else. And we feel so trapped in that reality that we don't even think we're allowed to ask this question. God, where are you? And here is why I absolutely love this text. Because God here actually gives us an answer. Where was God? Genesis 39 tells us. Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. William Cooper, years ago, in his old immortal hymn, he said that God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. We see that here. God seems absent. God is not mentioned one time, and yet God, God is intimately involved in every single moment of the story. He is with Joseph. He is with Jacob. He is with the brothers. He is sovereignly superintending every moment of this small story to make it a part of his larger one. And Jacob, not Jacob, Joseph, Joseph one day sees it. He looks back in Genesis 50 and he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God, God intended good. God was doing something that we could not see, that we could not have comprehended, something so much better than we ever could have imagined for ourselves. And he, he was not far from us. He was near and he was working. He's the reason that I was sent to you when you were shepherding the flock. He's the reason that when I couldn't find you, this random man just suddenly appears and says, oh, I know where they are. He's the reason that you didn't immediately kill me and Reuben stopped you, and he's the reason that you ultimately sold me. Because the slavery of Joseph, the the sale of Joseph into slavery is what? It's the means through which God saves not just this family, it's the means through which God saves this world. As Joseph says in Genesis 50, you meant evil against me, But God intended it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God, God's not the author of all this evil, but he is the one who rules over it. And he here in this text, he's not just answering Joseph. He's not just answering the people of Israel living in slavery, wondering where God has been for hundreds of years. He's answering us. Because in saving Joseph's family, who else is he saving? He's saving us. Because in keeping the hope of that family alive, his chosen family, he's keeping the hope of the gospel alive. The hope of a father far better than Jacob. 
who sends a son far better than Joseph to gather into his embrace his beloved sheep. A father who, unlike Jacob, doesn't play favorites, but loves sinners. And a son who, unlike Joseph, doesn't gloat about his power and his glory before his brothers, but instead joyfully takes off his royal robe so that he could wrap undeserving sinners in it. A brother who is not led unwillingly into slavery, but who willingly gives himself over to death so that the very people who hated him, the very people who wanted his death, might be spared not just temporal death, but eternal death. A son the Father raised, and who now pours out His Spirit upon us so that we would know in the midst of this world of sin and brokenness that we are not forgotten, and we are not unloved, and we are not abandoned, but the God who loves us, who made us, who created us, and formed us, He is with us even now. And though we may not understand what is happening in this moment, It takes 22 years for Joseph and his family to finally see. A God who one day will lift the veil in a way that will make what happens with Joseph's family look small in comparison. So that all of his people, all who have trusted him over the years would know that here is one who, as Paul says in Romans 8, in all things works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. The God of Genesis 37 The God we see in the face of Jesus, he's not the deadbeat dad of that show. He's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is the God that we can trust even when we can't see or feel him in the moment. Because we look at this family And we see who he is because of the way he works in their story. There is no family so broken that Christ cannot redeem it. There is no heart so hard that Christ cannot break it. There is no life so lost that Christ cannot recover it. And there is no sin so deep that Christ cannot atone for it. We have questions. And those questions are not just going to go away. But we have in Christ an answer. Where is God? He is Emmanuel. God with us. May we flee to him for the refuge that only he can provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Father, we're grateful that we have a God like you who pursues strange sheep, who works even in the midst of evil things, Lord, for our good. A God who is so loving and so gracious, he would give even his beloved son. Would you work now in such a way that you would meet our hearts where they are broken and wounded, Lord, where that question of where are you, Lord, where it feels ragged and hopeless, Lord, would you meet us with the hope of the gospel? And would you press it home so that we would walk from this place, Lord, maybe not knowing what's coming next, but knowing this, it is good because it comes from your hand. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen.
You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.